All right. Hi, welcome. Uh, we're here with Chad Haig uh, from Southern India. How are you doing, Chad? Welcome. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm Griffin. This is Ryan. Uh, Ryan, yep. I don't think we even introduced ourselves before. Um, <laughs> uh, we're uh, we're here in Detroit, uh, Michigan, and uh, we're just talking about anti-tech stuff, trying to talk to anti-thinkers such as yourself and spread the word and get uh, um, get some of the stuff less uh, stigmatized, I guess, so to speak. But um, uh, I don't know if people can't know that the can't work on fixing the problem if they don't know there's a problem. So let's talk about the problem a little bit, you know. Um, so to begin, uh, Chad, you're in India right now. Um, so what what drew you specifically to India? Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to have this discussion with you. Um, to be honest with you, the first thing that uh, uh, drew me to come to India was the fact that uh, this is the home nation of my wife. Um, now, we had um, thought about living in America, you know, after we were married. But um, after I'd actually experienced life in India, um, I realized that this was exactly the kind of place which I wish America um, was, you know, for years, I'd um, fantasized about my ideal version of America, largely based on uh, John Michael Greer's um, novel Retrotopia. He has a, a hypothetical image of, of, of Toledo, Ohio in the year 2065, in which you have a higher quality of life um, and really a higher standard of living for many people, um, precisely by using less technology, um, using less fossil fuels, doing things by hand, using tools which we've known actually for centuries that they work perfectly well. We just feel that they're not an option in modern America due to an irrational prejudice that um, anything more quote unquote technologically advanced is the thing you have to use, even if it gives you poor results, causes more environmental damage and uh, puts more people out of work. So I, I noticed things in India like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the neighborhood um, butcher. I, I keep about 15 chickens in the backyard and uh, time comes to butcher a chicken. I can just walk down to the butcher, pay a dollar and 50 cents. He'll uh, he'll slaughter the animal. He'll, uh, you know, he'll cut it up into exactly the right pieces you need to make a chicken biryani. Um, it's it's an amazing, um, it's 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 an amazing improvement over going to Walmart and getting a bird from a factory that lived for about six weeks and lived in such dangerous conditions that you'll get very bad food poisoning if it's not fully cooked. As this bird from my backyard, I can eat slightly pink and it's, it tastes better. It's cheaper. It's such a great and this is the sort of arrangement which we could have in America. We just feel that we can't. And I became very interested in um, examining the philosophical reasons why we have this sort of mental block in America. This led me to uh, study people like Ted Kaczynski, Jacques Ellul, John Michael Greer, Penty Linkola. And um, really the channel um, emerged after I had already had this experience. Uh, most people don't know. <laughs> That that also, so like um uh I guess we were asking too um uh I know you've probably told the story a million, a million times but if uh for those that don't know uh what is your little uh, tale of how uh, you were kind of like I don't want to say driven to <laughs> India but there was a motivation right uh, <laughs> right so um, CNBC interviewed me in 2018. Um, I was involved with Alan Collins, who's the uh, founder of Student Loan Justice. I was I was very active, very enthusiastic about, um, you know, uh, um, uh, the sort of work that he does with really seriously trying to get student loan uh, justice. Um, 
rather than, you know, the forgiveness programs we currently have, which like 99.99 something percent of people uh, get booted out of. Most people who are in the, um, you know, the uh, income based uh, uh, payment programs or the um, the uh, the uh, public service forgiveness program, you know, you teach uh, in the inner city of uh, fill in the blank and then you get your hundred fifty thousand dollars forgiven. Almost all of the people who think they're going to have it forgiven that way actually find that they're booted out of the program. So <laughs> in contrast with this sort of uh, pseudo um, <laughs> solution to the student loan crisis, Alan Collins was um, basically the only person who was really serious. So I was, I was deeply involved with his work. Um, and he was also speaking to a lot of reporters. So CNBC actually um, contacted me when I was in India and they interviewed me um, about uh, how I had, in a certain sense, come to India to uh, to escape my student loans. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's part of the truth, but that certainly wasn't the only reason. Now, mm-hmm. they wildly exaggerated certain things, like um, they, they took a picture of me riding an elephant at a tourist park and <laughs> made it seem that I do that every day because I'm just living in the jungle, you know, like Tarzan. That picture, <laughs> um, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> right, that's actually at an elephant park, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a tourist site, you know, but they're making it seem, um, it's not quite as ridiculous as um, Rooster Magazine in Boulder uh, took a picture of me wearing a turban when I was in Northeast India, which is all the way on the border of Bangladesh. Um, it's as far away from here as you can get within India. Um, and they made it seem that that was the kind of clothing I wear every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just like, you just gave up on America. Now you're just a full-fledged Indian, right? Because, and all, it's all because of student debt. That's, that's the story they told, right? Well, the, the reaction from people was something along the lines of, well, it was only $20,000, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> when you live in India, you realize how much money $20,000 $20, actually could is. get you. Yeah, exactly. No, I was, I was reading, to, like, to touch on that point, like, I, I was reading about, like, it was something about, like, Kenya. I wanted just some random article about Kenya, but it was like, oh, like, but the people only make, like, $2 a day on average. Like, how do they afford Nintendos? And somebody was like, yeah, but, like, $2 <laughs> in Kenya is, like, 3000 here. Like, that's the equivalent purchasing power. So, like, people just, like, people just, like, like vastly misunderstand the, um, like, the, the, the money, like, the monetary-based system we live in, where they don't, like, so, like, when you go to, when, when you're in places like India, where you talk about, like, you have, set, you have, like, these aspects of self-sustainability that have been, like, co-opted in America by the monetary system, right, where, like, we don't, we don't, we don't spend the money to raise chickens here, we get money to buy corpses, right, and that's what we, we exchanged our labor for money for, things that traditionally you would produce in your own home or produce locally or pay a butcher because you already raised the animals, right? If you really think about the kinds of expenses you have in the United States, many of them are completely meaningless. Uh, $2,000 a month for rent in the city of Denver. Okay. And I'm not talking about for a nice place. That's just basic. Um, You have uh, hundreds of dollars every month for insurance for which if you actually have, say, a car accident, they'll, the, the, the main thing they'll focus on is how to get out of paying for it. Okay, yep. <laughs> You've got health insurance, which they don't also, you know, when the time comes to help you, they, they get out of it. Um, the student loans, you know, that, once again, that is a completely meaningless drain of money every month <laughs> for something which even when you were in college, most of what most of the courses you took, at least in my experience, you didn't really learn anything. The professor saw it as the the challenge was how can I not teach you for fifty minutes? Just sort of uh, <laughs> give you some busy work, you know, think, pair, share, uh, pass yeah. the time, and then you still have to pay for this thirty years later. 
Um, the, the difference really, as I always uh, try uh, to uh, tell people about my experience living in India, is you have expenses here, but they're far more meaningful. Uh, you mentioned uh, $2 a day being excuse me, pretty much enough in, in Kenya. Well, um, I think the average person in the nation of India lives on maybe less than a dollar a day. There are some parts where agricultural um, wage laborers, for example, will do an entire day's farm work for like 80 cents, okay? And it, you think about this as an American um, as an impossible amount of money to live on, but that's because you're imagining that they have the same um, monthly rent, $2,000 a month. You imagine that they have the the, the student loan payment or the, the insurance or, um, you know, even like uh, uh, vehicles uh, really drive up the cost of living in America unnecessarily so because you have to spend, what, $200 a week on gasoline because the, the suburban sprawl leaves you with no choice except to do that. But the infrastructure in India or and I would assume Kenya as well. Um, it is such that you don't have to have an accept uh, an extraordinary amount of money for mostly meaningless um, things like I just mentioned. If you do spend money, it's on things like, um, you know, um, uh, vegetables. You know, you can get a, a whole week's worth of vegetables in rural India for just like $3. And I don't even really do that anymore because at this point, I'm growing about 80% of my daily vegetables just on the roof. <laughs> and um, you can you can have a higher standard of living precisely by dropping out of... Um, the system which costs more money and um, living on basically a few dollars a day, as I did uh, for much of the time I was in India, the only source of income I had was uh, book sales. And I, I didn't sell that many books when I first started in, say, early 2019. But even just a few dollars a day was enough to cover many of the things which I actually needed. Yeah, that uh, you actually like hit on uh, exactly what I was thinking about too. Like that, it's it comes from this warped view of what like the standard of living is supposed to be, and we live in this society where our uh, you know the resources that we consume uh, like are way more than necessary than like are necessary to survive, and that's like why we live in a country where we expend more resources than we would even be able to produce in our own country. So that's why we have to go to other countries and start using their labor, and then you get like this this global network start happening, and uh, you know more of the issues on that point. But um, I I did want to uh, ask you um, because we wa we were recently watching some of your some of your videos, and one of them that we watched that we found absolutely hilarious was when you were reading academic papers that were just completely terrible and repetitive and circular and and, and then they always talk about you know the, the the it's like it's like watching it's like a bad 80s like a bad 80s art student film like the space in between like that whole like like it's metaphysical drivel would be like it's like it was, oh my god so like, like we're we're both in grad school programs i'm i'm trying to get a i'm in a phd program for philosophy and he's in law school mostly because um, it's free that's, yeah that's and so we we related to that pretty heavily because uh it's that's actually important <laughs> i want to touch it's like a lot of like and and chad I, I i guarantee you will have a lot to say about this but like it seems like a lot of like academic philosophers are just like confined into these boxes because they're afraid of like they're afraid of like They're specializing something. too oh, hard. Yeah, they, they basically specialize like scientists do. And then you end up with like, I have this theory about IBE that can solve 
three problems total and you're like great that's your life and that's your whole career so like i wonder if you could say what what do you think is um is what's what's missing from uh the way academia is done in the west and why it's creating these terrible papers what 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 is missing what does it what does it need (laughs) well i think um if i were to yeah if i were to maybe name one um factor of many as maybe being the most important uh, I honestly think it's the lack of enthusiasm, um, as ironic as that might be, um, is the the people who write these dissertations <laughs> are not even that interested in their own theories. Honestly, <laughs> um, when you're in graduate school, at least my experience is, um, you've noticed that most graduate students spend more time and more energy maintaining their Twitter account than they do their own doctoral dissertation, right? They're more interested in what they're posting on social media, which let's face it is mostly just retweeting Democrat politicians and people like Sean King. I mean, it's kind of an unwritten rule that that's what you're using your social media profile for when you, you know, quite frankly, go out on the job market is that you want to show that to the public. Um, they're more interested in that than they are in developing their own theories. Mm-hmm. And this is why it takes so many years to finish a dissertation unnecessarily. It's only it's not that long, really. Um, it's it's less than 200 pages including the works cited page Which in many cases i thing yeah i mean if you just throw <laughs> right, it at the wall you can just stretch these things out like <laughs> if, if you need like you can just stretch them out for like hey i found this one theory that do really you, you can do so much with these dissertations and it's like but it takes five years yeah it realistically should take you like at best like a year of like dedicated <laughs> work to do it 200 pages in a year seems more than doable you know well, I mean, my own experience, if I may say so, um, is I wrote a 382-page book, uh, The Later Philosophy of Pentelinkula, um, in um, 70 days. It was 70 days from start to finish. Boom, there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that freaking, what's it? Um, oh, that were like Dostoevsky wrote The Gambler in like 20 days because he was broke, like he needed money, so he had to write a book, so he just... <laughs> Threw out a masterpiece in three weeks, and you know that, 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 that's just one of the greatest that he ever did. So you know, there you go. Like, if you're if you're passionate for what you're doing, I mean, so yeah, it's a, lack, it's, it's a lack. It's a lack of passion. It's a lack of passion. It's just like these people are like. I think this is like generally speaking to an issue with like academic glut. Where like 50 years ago, like higher education was still relatively limited by who came in, but since we started exporting every single job and the kitchen sink there's nothing left but college for most Americans. And then they're just stuck like getting degrees and Not nothing, just nothing, just pa- paper. It's just paperwork. And it's just, it's just this massive service industry. It's a disaster. That's, that's so, so I wonder, do, do you have any ideas for like, like what is, why, why isn't there any passion? Like what, what do, you, do you think there's a core reason why there isn't passion? Is it, is it because people just aren't, uh, they're too distracted by like their social media and things like that, that there's no room for like passion to seep in? Or um, do you think there's something else going on too? Well, if you consider the handful of professors um, who who actually have an extraordinary amount of passion for the subject and spend 
many hours trying to provide the best education they possibly can. There's not many of them. And I noticed myself that the only professors who really fit that model um, that I had were um, all people who got their doctorate degrees in the 1970s. I'm talking like 1975. Um, Several of these people I can think of are quite frankly already passed away. That's how old they were. And the other two have um, retired. So um, the kind of people which I have in mind um, largely don't even exist anymore. They're either you know, unfortunately passed away or they've retired. And the people who came after them all are noticeably different from they. And um, there's um, a book about the sort of business changes which occurred in the 1980s, which explain this. Um, I think it's called the the five-year party, right? The, the five-year party, why uh, college has given up on, on even trying to educate your child or something like that. Um, and what happened was um, college administration didn't really exist in the days of the people I'm talking about, you know, the, the 70s, the 60s, etc. If you had administrators in the college, they were largely just um, teachers who had to take on some extra uh, paperwork um, out of obligation, basically. Um, and they were they were scholars, you know what I mean? They were people who had spent their um, lives becoming experts in a Plato and Aristotle and things like that, okay? They were that kind of people. And the 1980s, um, I think largely because that was about the same time you see um, massive outsourcing, uh, factories shutting down, people laid off in, you know, all over the country. It's about that time that suddenly you have a much larger market for people who um, are being forced to go to college. And it's not a coincidence that at that time, the business model of the college changes. You bring in administrators who are actually not scholars in any sense of the word. Um, they are simply um, corporate hacks who... Um, come from fortune 500 companies and they're brought to the university with the the sole purpose of maximizing profit and they bring their understanding of how business works to the college and they um actually um restructure the curriculum such that anybody who tries to teach college the way um these people i just mentioned from the 70s would do where you're actually reading plato you're actually doing the greek etymology you're actually um, 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 citing all kinds of scholarship relative, uh, relevant to the topic, those sort of people um, would be um, eliminated. Now, the people um, I was fortunate enough to study under got out of that. They escaped that because they had already gotten there and gotten tenure decades ago when that was still possible. It wasn't, um, they were like uh, barnacles is the, uh, um, the, the, the name for them in academia. You can't get rid of them because they're already grandfathered into the system. But once they die, or retire, you just never see people like that again, because the only people who will be brought in are people who um, are able to produce sound bites, which are so easy to digest that even a hungover, functionally illiterate, half asleep, 18 year old kid sitting at the very back of a lecture hall will be able to pick it up during lecture and then you know work got, it into a three page right term. they got their phone maybe there's a laptop that they're you know they're on reddit with it you know like, <laughs> right they're watching netflix they're watching breaking bad during class <laughs> but oh, yeah, people people like video games. they have gaming computers they're just setting up like i don't need to pay attention to this shit you know i got an exam like, right right <sighs> Right. And those are the kids who show up. I don't know how many. <laughs> yeah, up, but, um, I think. <laughs> right. I mean, I think when I was in um, college, say like, uh, uh, what, 14 years ago in 2007, I think the average attendance rate was like 50 percent if like a, a freshman level lecture hall class. <laughs> so <laughs> that's nuts. <laughs> it's funny because Heidi, one of one of our one of our good good friends, like she's she's going to medical. We're all going to grad school at the same time. What a wonderful, terrible experience! <laughs> but uh, but so, so so her so like in medical school, like people don't go to the lectures because like you have like. 
they just force feed you information like eight lectures a day. It's, it's hell, right? But so nobody goes to lectures anymore because they don't have the time to watch all the lectures in one day if they went to them in person. So uh, like, so something like only 3% of students were attending lectures and the school had sent out an email like right before COVID, you know, became super serious. They sent an email like, oh, we're going to start making like lecture attendance mandatory because it's depressing professors that know like the professors <laughs> are getting depressed and that no one is coming to class. And it's like, well, no shit. Like no one cares about this. Like you're just, you're just force feeding them it's it's, it's like they're just repeating wikipedia at people too it's at some point yeah it's like, like say, it's, it's like it's, hyper effective wikipedia yeah that'd be a great way to put it but yeah. <laughs> it's it's become technicized in a way that's like you said it's like digestible sound bites and it's like a diluted version of what it should be um yeah so, and it's seeping back into like the educators were like no, like they're they like, becoming complacent as well. Like, yeah, like, like I mean, we we've we've had like we had fellow students in our grad classes that like you could they could barely string you know who I'm talking about they could barely string together like a written sentence and you're just like how did you make it this far like who was was <laughs> anyone vetting this process like did you apply like it's, it's <sighs> yeah and, and I think I think you, the issue gets uh, worse obviously when people feel this. Um, like, I'm glad that you mentioned how it used to be in like the 70s and 80s, because I, I, I've, I was always told by my professors, like how awesome college was back then, because <laughs> you would just kind of go to this building and there would be like, you know, some professor sitting on a lawn, just kind of reading, you know, Plato or something. And you just kind of sit and listen and, and absorb it. And, you know, it's you're people are there to learn. They're not there to get a job. Now people are there to get a job. So like, I think, um, I, I wonder, do, do you, do you see some of that happening too, that there, there's this, uh, shift in focus for what uh, education is even for in like a technological society. Yeah, I mean, I think of uh, Chris Hedges um, mentioning that um, having taught in um, Ivy League University, so it's not just, you know, the, the state party school with 50,000 students on campus, even Ivy League universities from his experience um, is really not any different. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly low enthusiasm. Students are only interested in getting the A so they can get the high paying job. Um, and he found that the best place to teach is actually prison, <laughs> because in prison, you have people who are learning really just to improve themselves. You know, they're trying to turn their lives around. I guess after hitting rock bottom in a, in a certain sense. And um, those are actually really the best people to teach. These people have so much enthusiasm that they, they he says they turn their jail cell into like a, a little um, a library, right? And I think about the way that um, education has become so corrupt in the United States that even like a, a so-called top university really isn't any better. Um, and this is largely because the kind of thinking which a technological society in particular needs is the kind of thinking where you're not really thinking anything, <laughs> okay? Um, it's, it's actually seen as a technical problem if you study um, people who really challenge you intellectually, like you don't read Fichte really in any university. You don't read Thomas Aquinas. You don't read Gadamer. Um, you don't really read Hegel. When I was in graduate school, we only read the uh, slave master dialectic, and yeah, the professor I would, I would read was that, that tells you what communism is, and then 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 you skip over everything else Hegel ever did, and then there you go. That that, <laughs> that, that was my college experience with him as well. <laughs> right, and and the the professor um, who who maybe argues, oh, this is just about communism. All you need to know is that Marx was influenced by this end of the story. Um, they missed the point that Hegel's understanding of um, 
industrial production was craftsmen working with hand tools. <laughs> um, Hegel really didn't have capitalism in mind when he when he was talking about this. But that's the kind of that's the kind of education you get in which, like, when even I was in graduate school, the professor did so little preparation before class that um, she actually showed up and said abstract negation. He's talking about abstract negation. Why is it abstract? <laughs> I'm realizing that abstract negation and determinate negation is like the most basic thing in Hegel. That's like not knowing the world of ideas in Plato. And I mean, it just confirmed to me that like it, it, they've basically given up on even trying. It's, it's, it's come to be understood that you don't have to really know what you're talking about or to do the work to, to study the subject beforehand in an, in an intensive manner. Um, really, you're just the, the the graduate seminar has basically become like a corporate boardroom meeting. The purpose of going to class is not to um, actually learn the subject, let alone to discuss it in a serious manner. It's simply to build social capital. You show up to class in order to kiss the right person's ass, um, in order to get access to the the research assistantship, the TA, the funding, um, the job uh, placement later. That's what you're really doing in class. And um, this is because the kind of thinking which um, which the technological society needs um, in which you don't think, but rather you find a way to basically game the system for unearned wealth at a time when um, technological automation has basically um, handed all the real work over to machines. The only thing which humans really can do in such a society is find ways to work their way up these sort of um, uh, hierarchies using only the most crass methods of social manipulation. And that is extended even to the people who are supposed to be professional thinkers. There's something I wrote, because um, speaking about like this specific topic, I, I once wrote a paper, this is years ago now, but I wrote a paper about like the, I was talking about how if you looked at like the job structure of America today, if you ignore all the people, that, so if you ignored everyone over 18 that's unemployed, which is like half the population of people above 18, you have about like 150 million like workers, people that make money in the United States doing jobs. And like, so I compared it to like pre-industrial, like I compared it to pre-industrial agricultural societies. I was like, look, back in the day, it was like an 80-20 ratio, like 80% agriculture, 20% in the cities at most. And that's how they, the, the system existed. And then, so then I just went to the labor demographics. I was like, I wonder what it looks like today. And so out of like, out of like that 150 million people, something like only, there's only like 8 million manufacturing jobs left, like oh, 8 million people working in factories and then like military stuff. And then everything else. So like the other, like 120 million people were just various like I call them money trading industries. Like, like there would be people that like outside of like lawyers, like professional jobs, there would be people that worked in like insurance companies, like something like hospital, like insurance for medical is like 18 million people are employed by like medical insurance. Like that whole field of work is like a sixth of the American working population. And it's like, and it's like, we have this system in place. So like one of the biggest impetuses to change is that like the system is built around like these like basically service jobs, right? And like any sort of like change where we remove more and more service jobs from the economy, like there's, we're, we're literally like destroying the basic system that's in place. So like, yeah. so like I always thought of that being as like a big like roadblock to like positive change in America, like to undo some of the damage done is that like, if they even started to undo so like if they started like changing health insurance to be something like 
not so exploitative, it would bankrupt millions and millions of Americans that would not have jobs. Like their entire jobs would be absolute, like obsolete. And then what do you do with them? And because they don't actually produce anything, yeah, their job is anything. just to maintain just, the system. They maintain the system and trade money around. And then that's just that's just like eighty percent of jobs in America are jobs that basically do that. Yeah. And do you? Uh, uh, what's your impression of like what that percentage might be in India, Chad? Do you do you have any idea, or have you thought about that? <laughs> Uh, it would be hard to uh, to put a number on it, um, but I can say that many more people in India will be employed at any given place you go relative to what you'd see in the United States. If I could explain that maybe a little more clearly, um, if you if you go out somewhere um, in India, you'll see um, a, a guy working the gate. His job is to open a gate. And as an American, you say, well, why didn't they just automate that, right? Um, but, but that's the point is they needed that guy to have a job. You have a parking lot attendant. There's a guy in a parking lot who shows the person driving uh, where to park the car, helps them get out. Um, that's, I wouldn't say, well, I guess it's automated in um, the United States in that um, the traffic lights tells you how to leave, even like the parking lot of Walmart. Um, and, and that's the thing is like, we have this selective attitude of universal automation in the United States, in which any job that's actually physically done by somebody who has a real skill, we invest so much resources into making sure that um, it's taken over by a machine, even if the consequences are bad. Um, in, in fact, uh, self-driving cars have already started killing a number of people, um, but we still accept that as inevitable, that um, every truck uh, driven within the United States to deliver goods to Walmart will have to be driven by a computer. Um, but we have this other sector of the economy in which even though jobs ideally could be automated away quite easily, like stockbroker, banker, to use uh, John Michael Greer's own um, examples, we still um, uh, caution everyone that that would cause an economic crisis. We say, oh, but if those people are put out of work, there will be bankruptcies and then um, there will be a crisis of, they, they won't, psychological suffering and existential crisis of not knowing what to do with their lives. Well, it's to the point now where even if the technical fix is implemented such as on Wall Street, where over 90% of trading already is done by AI, the yeah. people in the um, service still get to keep their jobs. Like John, um, um, uh, Jim Rickards noted when he worked on Wall Street, showing up to work meant playing golf <laughs> because they had to do something with their time while the computer was handling the trading. So they just amused themselves and collect a paycheck. Well, you brought up infrastructure and you talked about how in India, like there's not that large of an infrastructure, right? And I wrote, I wrote a little note for myself. I was thinking like in India, how is like, I'm thinking of like, so let's say you're in Southern India and you want to get to New Delhi. How do you get there within a day as cheaply as possible? Like uh, India has a really good rail system, right? Well, I mean, the, uh, the train system in India is such that um, if I were to travel, I live basically all the way on the, the Southern tip. Okay. And, and New Delhi is pretty far North. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of like you know south of the Himalayas. It's it's a very large uh, long distance. Um, I could ride a train um, for fifty dollars from um, all the way on the southern tip to New Delhi. I remember being in Chicago and spending like fifty dollars. Um, a red it was Los Angeles. Sorry, um, I was in Los Angeles and I spent fifty dollars to ride an Amtrak train um, to Orange County, like what an hour south. Right? <laughs> um, Right. And, and it was like, it was, it was the, the Amtrak service is always like an hour late in the United States anyway. Um, yeah. So it's, because right, it's, it's a clearly, they do whatever they want. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a clearly inferior service and product for a higher price. And that really is um, a microcosm of life within the United States overall. 
it's so much more expensive and yet the quality of everything you can care to to name um is, is so much worse even just food like um we have this uh, stereotypical image of uh, third world poverty right you know um like um, there was a vlogger who was uh, mocking um, India um, uh, when COVID was uh, was coming here. He said, oh, that's a nation so poor that um, you get uh, all you eat is rice and blah, blah, blah. Well, he's missing the point that the rice here is so much more nutritious that um, even if I have just a bowl of rice porridge for dinner and two eggs from my backyard chickens, that's enough. Whereas if I go to, um, say, like uh, McDonald's in the United States, um, it's like $10 and I'm hungry a little bit later because it was not what it seemed to be. Most of what you were actually consuming was um, uh, chemically rearranged corn and soybeans, right? It's not even just beef put between two pieces of bread in the increasingly loose sense of that term. It's actually, it's a, it's a technological simulation. You're eating super cheap materials, including even like they put sawdust in hot dogs and things like that. Um, you're eating this, right, you're, you're spending so much more, more money um, for something which is is literally not even what it looks like, they just trick your your five senses into thinking that it's food when it's not even that. <laughs> this is something. Well, this yeah. is something we literally talked about yesterday. When we we're talking about garbage. Remember where where so like in America, like everything that you buy in America is like not everything, but I'm going to say like 99% is me- it comes in a package. 99% of the things you get in America come in a package. Yeah, plastic box, a plastic cardboard box, box like something, yeah. Everything is this, like, it's such a bizarre thing where we don't have manufacturers in this country anymore, but everything is manufactured. Like, how's that, in a, I'm just saying, Wait, how's what, that? What were, you, what were you saying about trash, though? Okay, well, well okay, so what, well, well, basically that America's solution to, we have all these manufactured goods, and what do we do with all this waste, like this packaging waste? We'll just compress it into a landfill and hope to God this doesn't bite us in the ass in 50 years. That that was like, <laughs> that's literally what we do. There's a giant freaking floating pile I, of trash I, in the Pacific. So I think it gets, I think like you both got at this uh, key thing of um, how, Chad, you use the term simulation and I love that word for it because it's, uh, um, for us, what's real is just what our five senses can take in. So if we can replicate whatever the five senses get when we eat a hamburger, if we can, as long as we can replicate that uh, sensory activity in however you want to define it, then like, boom, it's the same thing. You shouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's like- Yeah, it's the same yeah. qualitative experience, but the, at this deleterious quantitative effect on like on you as a person. Kind of, physi- yeah, it's like, it's, it's like this yeah. illusion of experience. People want to like, people want- uh, like experience itself uh and they don't care what means they get it uh so if it's a technical means and it's they get that same experience that they want or it's they're told that it's the same experience and that they shouldn't be uh uh, they shouldn't detect a difference um that's the thing it's like they're being bullied into uh uh agreeing that this is a a a satisfactory experience like i bet if a a small child eating like a, a garbage hamburger for the first time would probably not enjoy it. I, 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 don't, I feel like there would be some kind of like genetic revulsion to like what you're ingesting. Well, like, I'm like, how do you distinguish like the artificial from the real, like in a simulated society in, in a way? Well, I, th- I think I think we are able to, I think the question is, why is it that, that we want to tell people uh, out there that this technical version of the world that they're being fed is not the real one. Many of them realize it's not the real one and they don't care anyway. Or they realize it's not the real one, but they don't know like what the real is. They're like, all right, so if like all this like factory farming is evil, well, what do I eat? 
like wh- wh- where's food from like people don't <laughs> understand like what farming is like <laughs> literally it's just like the basic ingredients of society people are just like it's it's yeah so like it's I, I guess what would be something that you told that you would tell a person like that chad that that like doesn't understand why the artificial isn't uh the same thing they they don't get it like what would you say to them <laughs> I mean, that's a very big subject in that um, I wrote a 668-page book basically on this topic. And um, yeah, one of of the things that came up as I was writing the book was um, this was right around the time that COVID was, uh, you know, um, really becoming a serious like worldwide lockdown. Even India was in lockdown at that time. Um, And um, a lot of people were talking about the very... um, um, questionable origin of, of food within China. There was a story really from more like a few years back that resurfaced um, on a gutter oil, which in China is oil made from collecting raw sewage out of manholes, and then they process it in illegal factories, and then they um, repackage it as uh, deep fry oil. So you go get uh, cheap street food in China, in some cases anyway, and um, you'll find that it was actually deep fried in, in human feces right and um joe rogan watched this on his program and this guy used to host um fear factor right Right, and you know even he was like i just basically threw up in my mouth watching this this is the most disgusting thing i've seen in my life well the same people who um are, are are basically watching this if i may say so like a pornography of like third world disgust they're also um like vice news came to india and um just showed people open defecating into um into uh, rivers right um and um they would show people drinking out of the same river someone else just open defecated into and you watch this as westerners a certain pornography of, of third world disgust like oh there's people eating and drinking feces in the third world i'm so lucky to live in america is really what they're trying to get you to think these are the same people who if you tell them that there is literally cow manure in the hamburger patties, which they don't even bother to remove. They just add an, a layer of ammonia filling to basically sanitize the burger um, from within. These are the same people who's, who would basically react to eating feces themselves by saying, well, what, would I, what do I care so long as I don't have to um, smell, taste, see, etc. cetera, yeah. the manure? Basically, if, I don't, if it doesn't enter the stream of the five senses, even if I know that it's really there, I don't even care is basically the point we have reached. Mm-hmm. You actually bring up, I, I call it, this is what I call, I call it the purified water paradox where, where people in the Western world, like this is, this is true. And like Detroit people in Detroit, they don't drink the tap water. The tap water is poison. Oh, especially because oh. we're near Flint and oh, they, they have the whole Flint. water oh, crisis. Oh, and yeah, yeah. People don't even know why. What? Don't even get me started on that because that's just like, that just comes down to people trusting dumb dick legislatures, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> Um, but basically it's like people like, oh, I only drink purified water. I wouldn't drink tap water. And it's like, how did your genetic line get to this point? Like, (laughs) like, did you, what did your ancestors drink? Like three generations ago before, like. I'm not I'm throwing dude, chemicals in water to purify it. Like I'm not that old. And I remember when like well bottled water, bottled yeah. water first started like becoming a thing. And I remember like my mom like being weirded out and be like, I don't think we need that. We have water at home, right? And, yeah, we and now water. it's like you're weird if you don't. <laughs> it, it, it's this weird like obsession. Like the West has this really bizarre obsession with cleanliness that seems to not actually be helpful it's 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 almost almost like the it's almost it's it's it sounds to me just like talking about it now that it's almost like the inverse of what you're talking about chad that it's like they uh um 
they don't like like they're told that there's like germs and that there's like uh this bad stuff in the water that might be totally fine uh in order to it, it's like instrumental in order to sell them something else like uh um something about like how i i've heard that uh advertising was really heavy in selling bathroom products to people because before people just didn't wash as much but they were told over and over that they're dirty and they're terrible and there's all these like uh these germs that are going to like harm you and that you have halitosis and people really talk about you behind your back and you don't know it <laughs> and, and well that, that just comes down to like the nature of like when you're in this like massive mass media society like advertisements are great on the senses you get these little 30 minute sound clips bad breath makes all the bitches hate you like damn everyone's gonna do this by that like that's that's what happens like like and we've been an advertising driven society since since the war basically yeah that's so, really so what they'll, we got good so at people it. will consume things for experiences that I, that are totally intangible. And then the experiences that are tangible, they'll take the artificial version because they're more efficient. Uh, and they don't, they don't care because they're getting, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting it mixed up is, do I need some clarification on how I'm describing it or what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, if we're talking about water, um, I am somebody who, according to the UN, does not have access to clean drinking water. Uh, by the, uh, according to the UN, the state in Kerala with the least uh, number of people um, with access to clean drinking water is my own state. And they say that because most people here get their water from a well. I've mentioned before that, um, you know, I didn't really have to invest a lot of money to go off grid in India because there is no grid in the village. There is no water grid. There's no city water. You have no choice except to get your water from a well, okay? And the irony is the UN is saying that I'm technically somebody in the third world with no access to clean drinking water, whereas the well water from my own land is the cleanest water I've had. I, I, I used to obsess before I came to India about um, this fear that, oh, the water there is so bad. You see these uh, documentaries on, you know, uh, people open defecating into rivers, like I just mentioned. Cholera's um, running rampant in India for the 50th time this year. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah exactly. Right, and I, I had so much anxiety, and I actually um, lived in India for some time, and then I went back to America, and I just, just um, you know, made some coffee with tap water like I had done for years and years at, at, at uh, my, my old uh, family home. And that's what actually made me sick. It was <laughs> ironic that I went back to America and that's the water that made me sick because there was so much other stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say like germs. It was, it was probably more like a very questionable sort of chemical sort oh, of yeah, substance. Like birth control um, chemicals that everyone flushes that shit down the toilet. Yeah, no, I mean, the water supplies in America are just like, we don't have bacteria. We have, tainted, yeah. we have things smaller than bacteria that we don't even know is in there because like we can't test for 80% of this crap because we've never, we just started using it like 10 years ago. Oh man! Unforeseen circumstances. Unforeseen, unforeseen consequences. consequences. Yeah. consequences. Yeah, yeah. Literally unintended consequences. Yeah. Um. So like, I, I, I think like we often get to this point where we're like, oh, here's another thing that is, uh, you know, has been uh instituted or like um uh just like stuck in society and integrated. Sorry, is the word that I was looking for. Integrated into society, and there's these unforeseen consequences that come of it. Uh, like I think my favorite one that I usually talk about is like automobiles. That like uh. There's some story that my professor would tell me about how uh, when automobiles were first like being invented and somebody would get a car and drive down the road and ask their friend like, hey, uh, you need a ride to work? And he's like, no, man, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> um, no, I, got, I got a horse. Yeah. <laughs> the horse does the job. But yeah. then we started like <laughs> building our cities around this idea. Do you, I, I want to, do you have, do you have like a favorite like invention or um, uh, just 
technological uh, device or something that was made that was integrated, and then there were these terrible unforeseen circumstances. But I, now we just like live with it as a matter of fact. Like that's just how it is now. So yeah, like, like like what's what's go. one of the key ones for you? <laughs> well, it's uh, very hard to think of only one, but um, one that I've personally grown to try to get away from as much as I can is um, the, uh, just the internet itself, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, <laughs> I um, remember even when I lived <clears throat> excuse me, in the United States, um, I actually canceled my cell phone uh, when I was working as a, uh, a medical courier. Mm-hmm. And without having a cell phone, without having social media, I noticed that even just the downtime at work, so as a medical courier, you, um, you get an order to you know, pick up a box of blood and take it from a blood center to a, a hospital. And when you're done with that, sometimes you'll have a, a little bit of time. You're waiting in the uh, hospital parking lot for another, um, another order. Okay? It might be 10 minutes. It might be 30 minutes, whatever. Um, the, uh, the first uh, reaction most people would have to that situation is, okay, whip out Twitter and see if there's anything new. And um, my, without a, a cell phone, I would instead take out a book, uh, mostly from the, uh, from the library. You know, um, uh, Didn't even have to pay for it. It was just a free book. And I was able to read so many books just waiting for appointments, uh, or to me, waiting for assignments uh, at work. Um, it's an amazing amount of time which you could use to do something else, but instead it's wasted. I remember training my replacement uh, for this job uh, before I, I, I quit and moved to India, and um, we had about an hour of wait between uh, jobs. And um, she whipped out uh, Facebook, and I could tell how frustrating the whole process actually was for her. She was trying to have fun, but you could tell just how boring it actually was to sit there and keep scrolling down, looking for something. And it's interesting that people do this by choice. They spend like a hundred dollars a month to have that cell phone service. Um, they, they don't do all the things they, they would otherwise love to do because they feel like if they have that 10 minutes of time, they, they have to use it on social media. Um, it's, it's this idea as Jacques Lul says that, um, it's not even that you enjoy one activity more than the other. It's actually more enjoyable to, to read a book in, during those 10 minutes. You just feel this on an option because a newer sort of technique has replaced another and has made it so obviously inferior as to no longer even be an option. Yet that is not because it satisfies humans' desires any better or that it's a better for the environment or so many other, other issues. It's rather that technique has its own logic of development which is completely indifferent to the existence of us. In fact, it's reached the point now that the existence of humans has become a technical problem. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Because I, I think I, uh, I think we all think about social media a lot, especially in like this day and age where it's become so central, especially given uh, like you and I were talking a little bit over email about how COVID uh, has been uh you know, it, whether or not it was uh, intentionally caused by anyone, it definitely has been co-opted in this way and used as a way to push technology further into people's lives. Uh, where now, like, I, man, I, I used to love going to see live music all the time. Uh, and now I haven't seen one since before COVID because it either isn't worth it, they only let like 10 people in, yeah. or, uh, um, you, you know, it, it's, or, or um, what most people do now is like you pay to watch it online. And and I'm like, why would I, <laughs> you, you buy like a subscription basically. Why yeah. would I pay $10 to watch a concert on my laptop? Like that's, that's totally not, not with the experience that I'm looking for at all. Um, uh, but, but people being reliant on social media and, and uh, I, you get it at like this, 
I don't want to necessarily call it an anxiety, but I think it's like this motivation that I have. And I think that it's a motivation that most people have that want to act or want to live like a moral ethical life is they recognize that um, you have a limited amount of time and energy in your life, or you can t think about it day to day, but even just in your life, you have a limited amount of time and energy. And uh, why it may seem like you're just spending five little minutes to check my phone, but that those minutes add up. You could have read an entire book over the course of a week with those little 10 minute chunks that you decided <laughs> to look at Twitter instead. And then you would actually possibly be a better human because of that, or you will at least have learned something and and like maybe found a passion or something like that, just in critically engaged in anything at all. But like, it's, it's the issue is it's taking people away from true experience and then giving them nothing in return. Like, I, I can't tell you how many people, I have like a bunch of, uh, my roommate plays like um, uh, uh, a lot of video games. And like, I have a lot of other friends that play a lot of video games too. And, um, uh, they use it a lot of the time to socialize. Um, and I think this is something that I hit. Uh, it's like a wall that I hit with a lot of people when I try to bring up these issues about social media um, is that they say, well, it's not taking me away from the experience because I'm socializing with all these people that I might not, other <laughs> I'm not otherwise have socialized with. Like what I wonder, what, what is your response to that, 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 to that reply, to that, that, that worry that people say like, either like I'm creating great relationships with people like from all over the world. I'm connecting with people really far away that I wouldn't have otherwise connected with. And I'm connecting with people in ways that I might not have otherwise. Maybe if I saw that person on the street in real life, I wouldn't have talked to them, but in this world I am. And so that's better. What, what would you say to someone that says something like that? I mean, to a certain extent, it is true that uh, social media allows a type of communication um, with with people that is that can be meaningful. Um, you know, uh, all the way from here in India right now, we're able to have this discussion, and you know, that is a good thing. However, I think that the the connection between the social media simulation of I don't know, um, um, interacting or communicating um, with others um, is, is something, the simulation was something which was intentionally engineered by people at social media headquarters to become something of a substitute, um, not even in a, in a kind of um, hermeneutical level, like replicating the, the, the kind of meaningful discussions you would have, but rather on a purely technological level. What I mean by that is they invested a lot of money and, uh, and time into examining how exactly to artificially stimulate the human body to release the same six biochemicals, I guess you would get if you had that sort of interaction. I, I'm, I'm guessing to the extent I understand it, if you were to um, leave home and run into a friend, right? And um, get to talk to them, you probably have those six biochemicals released. Um, if somebody were to come knock on your door unexpectedly, and you have a pleasant um, um, discussion with them, those six biochemicals released, they found a way to get you to release them, even if there's literally nobody on the other end. If you have bots mass liking something, when there's literally nobody on the other end, they can still make it seem on a purely physical level that you had that experience, even though you didn't. And the truth is most communication which goes on over social media is not meaningful in the way that, you know, what we're doing right now is most communication over social media is really just um, retweeting sensationalism, usually really of a political variety. That's what social media, in my experience, before quitting had become. It was just a, a political outlet to, uh, 
to retweet um, um, uh, memes or really viral news articles like, oh, you'll never believe what this Republican senator did this time, right? Um, and you get likes from people who are like-minded. And it's not meaningful discussion. And even if there's a comment, it's likely to be just as sensationalist. And I really think that although they might have, um, um, they might have mimicked the physical structure of that sort of experience of communicating, they really haven't um, captured anything really beyond that. That's why no matter how much social media you use in one day, however many likes, let's just say you you're a, a prolific uh, vlogger who can get hundreds of likes in a single day from uploading a video. Um, qu uh, quantitatively, or I, I rather should say qualitatively, it's still less meaningful than just one interaction you might have of the kind I just mentioned of, of actually running into someone in person. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're exactly right. There's like these... Um layers of communication that are removed step by step the, the deeper um uh like the deeper the tech the, the communication gets technicized where uh I, I i think about it um where it's like you have regular talking you have like the full spectrum of communication you know like uh noticing body body motion well, like mean, body language yeah, and no, like, because body languages itself like just yeah. touch on the body languages itself like a vast majority of communication because like yeah. language came way after human interaction like so like we were already playing the game before the word game was yeah. invented i like. can't tell you how many arguments i've got in with uh with girls because uh i misunderstood something that was sent over text message or they misunderstood something that i was trying to convey through text message because you're trying to communicate and in like these deep ways uh by but after removing like several levels of communication i was like okay you don't see my face anymore so we'll just talk on the phone it's like uh so you don't get any of the body language but at least you can hear my voice you can hear inflections and things like that but oh that's kind of messy sometimes let's just remove that we'll just go straight to texting so we'll all just talk like robots and we'll reinvent the language so that you can uh get my meaning uh through text in uh, like that that's kind of like what uh, it seems like um emojis and like video chat we're trying to like reclaim that it's like we went down to texting and uh instant messaging like aim back in the day and uh people realized that there was like an absence that they were missing all those levels of communication. So then they started making emojis like, Oh, I can like kind of get those facial emotions back. I can uh, make this sarcastic that, by adding a certain emoji. Yeah. And that changes the tone of the whole thing. <laughs> or yeah. I can do some, like I can reinsert body language. It's like, Oh, or I can make it a uh, uh, video. And so now you can actually like see my face, but there's this weird delay that happens or, Oh, you got frozen for a second and your face looks all weird or like, um, uh, so it's, it's, it's trying really hard, uh, uh, to replicate it and it feels like um it like got further away and now it's getting closer and it's hard to tell uh it, it it's like as i think what we as we've all as we all probably agree on it's really not uh it, it may not have its path path planned out it's just going along the path of efficiency wherever that may lead and uh Chad, we're like we we've been talking for like an hour. We're um I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, you've you've written a lot of great stuff. Like I'm I, I've been reading Hermeneutical Death, and it's been great. I think that you do a really great job of like uh um making some of this stuff uh approachable. Palatable. Uh, yeah, yeah, palatable and approachable for people that maybe aren't as familiar. Yeah, because a lot of the issues with like talking about anti-tech stuff is that uh it sounds very doomer would be the word I'd use, where it sounds very like negative yeah, or, or just very like academic heavy sometimes. And, yeah. and I think I, I you you have a good voice for Chad, and we appreciate it.
and like having and like your your like uh explanation i mean i, I loved your story about like you know the third world in the water but like you're not a, you're, you're you're basically a unicef candidate according to the western world right and it's just like and it's just great like people just like people just have this like i think like a big issue in the western world like honestly is that they don't have like a thing to point at and go oh there's an alternative like there's no it's like it's like tech way or the hot like no way and yeah, like Here's another way. Where, where can people go to uh, find more of your stuff? Um, so I have the uh, YouTube channel, uh, Chad A. Haig, Peak Oil Philosophy. And I have the uh, six books on Amazon available on uh, paperback and ebook editions. Awesome. Thank you very much again for coming on, Chad. Last question. Do you have any like upcoming projects that you want to? Oh, yeah. Boom. <laughs> yeah, I've been working on a book. Um, um, called Why I Am Not a Leftist. Uh, this is something which I, I kind of floated the idea like two years ago. And even like after two years, there were still people leaving comments um, because I think that's one of the most maybe surprising things for most people about the channel is there's an assumption that anyone talking about like academic stuff is, is just by default um, a leftist, right? Yeah. And certainly when I was in and certainly when I was in graduate school, I was like, if, 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 if you, if you had seen the original, um, Chad Haig channel in, in say 2012, when I was in grad school, oh yeah, I was definitely, definitely, um, repeating whatever I had to say on that campus in Boulder, which is, which prides itself on trying to be like, you know, the most leftist uh, place in the country. So there's an understanding that if you're talking about, um, um, academic stuff, you, you have that sort of, uh, political view, but, um, I think that leftist in the Kaczynskian sense of the term, not an ideology, but rather a psychological type of over-socialization and feelings of inferiority. This is something which I think could be explored in much greater depth um, as I will um, you know, try to do uh, getting this book out. But it's also going to be a shorter book. I mean, the, the last book was 668 pages, and I saw a couple comments here and there about, oh, it's too long, blah, blah, you know, um, which I mean, no, I actually, uh, I, I appreciate that sort of feedback. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, the next book will kind of be um, uh, short and, and fun and cheap should be maybe 150 pages, maybe $7 uh, when it's available. But uh, yeah, it's just a great, um, it's a, a great uh, opportunity, I guess, to, to be able to, uh, to talk about things like this. Um, in a way that I feel would not even be possible if you were working with a, a, a certain formal institution. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like, like I'm, I'm thinking like, hey, did, like I always had this thought experiment. Like, could you take an excerpt of Kaczynski's manifesto and get it published? And like, he says something about a leftist every like ten paragraphs. So there's no way in hell you'd get any sort of because he always <laughs> is like, oh, and you know, by the way, don't forget about these evil academics that are spoiling everything, you know. So it's just like, yeah, no, it's just funny to think about. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's just like automatically filtered out by the by the institutions that are like, nope, we don't want that thought speak. You know, we yeah. don't want those thoughts in our in our space. So we're happy to promote some more people that are yeah. on the other side of that. And I I think we're all looking really forward to that book. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that book. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Chad. And uh, we hope to have you on again. This was this Yeah, was this awesome. was awesome. This was, I had, I had a lot of, if you can't, if you can't tell, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, it was a great talk. Um, it, it's so um, difficult to have that sort of uh, discussion really anywhere um, these days. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.